1977, I arrived at Highlands Northwest High School in Johannesburg. I was 12 years old. I found myself in a strange and frightening place, but it was also a world of unexpected pleasures. This is the story of my high school years and what they meant to me. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Even now, nearly 50 years later, My recollections of the December holidays before the January start of my first high school term is one of incremental terror. At some point after Christmas, I realized that my blissfully indulged primary school days in Johannesburg were well and truly over, and my fear began to thicken. It was 1977, and frighteningly soon, I would need to join all the other boys from the local primary schools, Bramley, Fairmount, Fairways, H.A. Jack, Houghton Primary, Orange Grove Primary and Norwood and take my place on the lowest rung of the high school ladder. I'd heard bewildering things about high school. It was a strange place, both highly disciplined and volatile. It was full of casual bullying. Some of the boys shaved. Some, if 18 in matric, were given special dispensation to park their cars on the school grounds. Rugby, a sport I knew nothing about, was played to the point of obsession. I fretted and hoped with a kind of craven hopelessness that my first day would never come. On the last day of school holidays, Michael Elias and I did a dry run before the start of term. Michael was my best friend, or was to become my best friend. We timed our walk up the hill to Highlands North Boys High School in Johannesburg to make sure we weren't late the following morning. On the day itself, we dressed in long grey trousers and knotted our ties before putting on our blazers with the slightly long sleeves. You'll grow into it, said Mom breezily, feeling both smart and awkward in our new shoes. High school blazers smelt different to primary school blazers, which were thicker and made of more wool. These blazers had the tang of unwashed newness about them. They rustled more. They felt strange. Everything did. Our blazers were nighttime blue with thin white stripes and earned us the nickname of the Butcher Boys in and around northeastern Johannesburg. There was a white eagle on our breast pockets with the motto Robo et Dignitas. Latin wasn't our strong suit. Craftily, or so we thought, we translated our school motto into Rob with Dignity. As we were to learn in the days, months and years to come, Blazers were vital in helping to perpetuate the school's subtle caste system. You could get academic and sporting scrolls to stitch, or for your mother to stitch, beneath your blazer breast pocket. You might even receive braiding or piping for half honours. If you were a schoolboy guard, you wore a white honours or full colours blazer, although I'm not sure you were allowed to wear it every day. This elevated you glowingly above the sea of humdrum blue. Shortly after we arrived at school that bright January morning in 1977, something happened which I will take with me to my grave. The new boys were divided into classes and told to wait while the rest of the school filed into the school hall for the first assembly of the year. Everyone in the school except us, the timid standard sixes, 
was seated in the hall when we were told to file into the hall from the back. This we did, walking in a line down the centre of the hall with seated boys on either side of us. It was like walking into the deepest, darkest part of a long, thin cave. First we filed past the matrix who filled the back rows, after that the standard nines seated in front of them, further in were the standard eights and finally the standard sevens. As we walked towards the empty seats at the front of the hall to sit down, the entire school started to hiss. Hissing doesn't rise to a crescendo, it simply proceeds along the same plane of spite, so you can never look forward to a point where it reaches its peak and falls away. As we walked, the combined school carried on hissing. They seemed to enjoy it. I had never been hissed at before. The only thing that hissed at my old primary school was the odd stray cat. I was dumbfounded, reduced. As I think back on the incident, I'm even more amazed that the hissing was condoned by the headmaster and his staff, no doubt seen by them as a harmless moment of initiation. The headmaster was an Irishman called John O'Mara, who stood imposingly before us on the stage that first morning. O'Mara, I think now, was a fair man in a tough school with many types of boys from many types of backgrounds. I'm not exactly sure what his talents were, but as I think about it, I suspect that one of his strengths was a talent for minor theatrics. Often he would loiter unseen around corners as classes shuffled down the school corridors between periods, looming out of the shadows as you changed direction or charged down the stairs. Behind his back he was nicknamed Batman because he always wore his academic gown. His features were ruddy. He had a heavy smoker's nicotine-stained fingers. His teeth were a ghastly yellow. There was the ghost of a widow's peak in the thinning hair he combed back off his forehead. He took pleasure in surprising us. The school was not without academic rigour, but it was sport that Omaro really loved. He watched cricket attentively, pretended hockey didn't exist, but became almost animated when it came to first 15 rugby fixtures. I even remember him offering opinions and advice on the rugby, something he would never have done for any other sport. Blazers, their colour and what was on them, were not the only thing that conferred status and difference. Some boys painted their canvas satchels with peace signs. Jimi Hendrix and Carlos Santana profiles were popular. Some managed to smuggle in Bob Marley or Rastafarian iconography in the form of stickers on their lunchbox. Tiny Bruce Lee, many boys in suburbia were fascinated by him, stood tall. Along with their white blazers, some of the first 15 rugby players wore brown brogues rather than the crepe-soled grasshopper shoes favoured by most of us. They pushed drawing pins into the soles of these brogues so you could hear the slow menace of their walk from a classroom or two away. Theirs was the long walk to freedom. They were saying, I am in your school but not of it. Maybe O'Mara and the young woman teachers of the school were mercilessly harassed and flirted with and were subject to every conceivable form of crude innuendo should be looked at again. School was a Darwinian jungle for them too. First 15 rugby players were difficult to fathom. They seemed to enjoy being noticed, but sometimes they enjoyed being left alone. You might not think it, 
given that he had been hissed at only a month or two before, but being left alone was a two-way street. Early that first year, the under-13A cricket team and the second cricket team shared a bus for a Saturday fixture away to Potchefstroom Boys High, about 120 kilometres from Johannesburg. The second cricket team was made up of a fair number of first 15 rugby players who made sure to convey in a variety of subtle and not-so-subtle ways that playing cricket was way, way beneath them. By playing cricket they were simply biding their time in an obtuse netherworld, not that they would have used either word, of course, of six ball overs and leg before decisions before rugby season began. As we left Highlands North early that Saturday morning for our journey to Potchefstroom, they took up residence at the back of the bus. Come to think of it, they might have taken up residence at the back of the bus before we left for Potch, so matter-of-fact was their entitlement. But let us simply say that you did not share their space or indeed even dare look in their direction. Talking to them was forbidden, although the etiquette of the school obliged you to answer them if barked at or summonsed. Some of them made you call them sir. Never could you talk back. Taunts and challenges from boys in the back of the bus were potentially endless. I didn't yet know the words to the school's rugby war cries. I'm not sure I even knew who was that year's head boy, who was the first 15 rugby captain. That I didn't know either. To my relief, I was never asked any of these questions because I scored 80-odd for my team and we won the match. They were not going to pick on a youngster who had scored 80-odd, beckon him hither and get him to do as many push-ups as he could manage on the trip home. I was tall and gangly, what my mother called skin and bone, and push-ups weren't my thing. At the first hint of a push-up, I would most likely fall down. I could travel back home knowing I'd done well, and on Monday morning at assembly, Mr. O'Mara would read out my name, along with all the other weekend sporting achievers, and I would float airily away from assembly on a carpet of pride. While there was fear and trepidation when learning the ropes at high school, I was twelve when I arrived in Standard 6, six months and sometimes even a year younger than many boys in my grade, There was also the excitement and wonder of a new world to discover. There was no better sight in those early years of a weekday afternoon in autumn, with the cricket season dawdling to an end and rugby practices in full swing. In the soft light of remembrance I can see it clearly. First frosts have bleached the kukuyu grass on the main rugby field beneath the jacarandas. The grass is not green, but neither is it what it will become winter dry and golden, forever getting into the turnips of your trousers. The setting sun is bright orange. Over a wall somewhere leaves are burning. There is a tang of approaching winter on the air that tickles your nostrils. You are not aware of being alive, but you are in a state of grace, thrillingly and vitally alive. Under 13 cricketers like me have just finished off fielding practice, the traditional end to their net session, so packing up to walk home or be collected. Off in the distance, the first 15 pack is pushing against the scrum machine, which is sliding across the grass despite eight or nine or even ten boys standing on it, bending their knees to somehow make themselves heavier. Everywhere there are little eddies of action. A fullback is practicing place-kicking. A scrum half is swallow-diving his passes between a set of cones to his fly-half. The back line rehearses a planned move in slow motion. 
Perhaps it is the fabled dummy scissors. We will see in the days to come. All is good with this world because everyone is trying to become better at what they do. They are refining and grooving, tweaking here, adjusting there. But for the odd shout of encouragement from those standing on the scrum machine or the burst of a whistle from a coach, all is silent. This is the infinitely long, peaceful silence of sporting endeavor, of boys going about being better at what they do, and it gives me a tremor of pleasure even now, 50 years later, as I think about it all over again. If these boys have even a jot of insight, they realize that they are playing a team sport, and team sports dictate that you subsume your ego to the needs of the whole. When you are 15 or 16 or 17, this is a challenge. Pridefulness and the hunt for glory is ever-present. There is always the temptation to showboat, to make a mad lunge for the lion, to fall into that self-deceiving space where you hope some magic is possible while knowing that it's probably not. And so practice has a kind of moral dimension to it because you are practicing to keep the temptation of white line fever at bay. In the silence there is a wrestle. It is a wrestle inside of you, between your better and your worse selves. Slow, patient rehearsal, if done properly, will hold you in good stead come the big day. I didn't of course know it then, but it was moments such as these, moments of almost sacred beauty, that led me to becoming a sports journalist. I might have entered Highlands North Boys High being hissed at. I might have spent at least some of my time being frightened by the boys in the back of the bus. But I also found in sports something numinous, something larger than myself and larger than those who played it. In my high school, with its frigid food chain and rigid pecking order, a warren of competition about so many things, girls, religion, girls as religion, food, favorite movies and bands, sport was something about which we could all agree. Into it we tumbled with the brazen fervor of our youth. Our big rivals in those days were King Edward, or to give their full name, King Edward Seventh School. King Edward was everything that we weren't, the posh school up on the ridge in Upper Houghton, while we were the egalitarian school down on Louis Boerter Avenue and busy Main Road. Their blazers were green, ours were blue with white stripes, their first 15 jerseys were fire engine red, ours dark blue. Theirs was the older school, full of red brick, with its own quaintly English old cricket pavilion. In my first few years at Highlands, I spent at least some of my lessons in the cold prefabricated huts on the edge of things, huts that were drafty and had holes in the floor. We never had a pavilion, for anything. We saw them as Protestant snobs. They saw us as the heathen unwashed, full of Portuguese and Lebanese and Italian boys and Jews, of which there were only a handful at King Edward. We didn't like them and they didn't like us, and we played our mutual antipathies to perfection on the sports field. When I was in Standard 8, my middle year of five years at Highlands in other words, something unheard of happened. Before a massive crowd running into tens of thousands, our first 15 narrowly beat theirs, and the match descended into a running battle between not only the players but the spectators. I was elsewhere at the time, probably playing hockey, and witnessed none of these events for myself. But as a result of these battles on and off the field, we had our fixtures against King Edward suspended because the boys of Highlands were allegedly thugs. 
we wouldn't play against them on the rugby field again until I left school. Of course, this made us hate them even more. Shared bus rides after school and Saturday night parties attended by boys of both schools were suddenly even more interesting than usual. King Edward were not the only school who played rugby. Johannesburg of the late 1970s was rugby mad, so every school played rugby. I remember the rugby itself as loose and rangy, with as little kicking as possible from the fly half. Flanks wanted to be fly halves, and fly halves wanted to be centres, centres wings. No one wanted to be a prop, and few wanted to be hooker. But in all respects, everyone wanted to be everyone else. Everyone also wanted to run, and run they did. All over the golden fields of wintertime Johannesburg, baked hard after months without rain. The first 15 would play on a Wednesday afternoon or late on a Saturday morning. It was compulsory to watch them at home unless you were off playing sport of your own elsewhere. During halftime of the second last match of the day, the first 15 and their reserves would emerge on the far side of the field from up near the swimming pool, led by their captain holding the team mascot. They would walk slowly behind the posts in their blue tracksuits to a point on the edge of the B field to limber up and get the feel of their hands on the ball. Feeling the rugby ball in your hands and staring at those hands in a sort of beatific amazement is a ritual not to be passed over if you are 17 years old and searching for the big moment. And you don't have to be playing rugby either. You can be on the stands and see this little cameo of meaningfulness and feel that along with it you are witnessing something more unutterably important than what is already important. We are all older now. We are older and wiser. And because of it we know that staring at your hands was all part of the choreography of the game and the planned choreography of the pre-game. Perhaps they were just nervous. And their nerves were calmed by getting their first touch of the ball. Soon they would take off their tracksuits, in my memory a slightly lighter shade of blue than their dark blue jerseys, and run onto the field through a tunnel of second 15 players who just finished the curtain raiser. I don't remember many matches per se. I remember a draw, I think it was 22 all against Grey High from Port Elizabeth, possibly because they wore sky blue jerseys and we wore white ones and for this reason the match is snagged in my memory. I remember a brilliant solo try by the Highlands captain and eighth man in a match against St David's in which it wasn't his speed so much as his strength that caused opposition tacklers to bounce off of him as he rumbled downfield like something out of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. Most of all, I remember the pageantry and the noise and the giddy excitement. We had brilliant war cries. One of them was called a rum-tum-tum, and although it wasn't poetry, a rum-tum-tum had a kind of surging power that we linked arms for and stamped our feet on the metal stands. We bellowed it out until we were hoarse. These afternoons were always over too quickly. I'm sorry I didn't make more of them, but how sorry can I realistically be? One of the meanings of youth is that it is a place where your future can scarcely be imagined. You are stuck fast in living your life and planning for only the next year and possibly the year after that. To project yourself into adulthood where you look back on this time and in doing so experience the regret adulthood brings is emotionally and imaginatively impossible when you are young. In fact, 
It is one of the definitions of what it means to be young. I didn't realize it back then, but school was a cultural wasteland, with only few exceptions, like an energetic and literature-loving English teacher called Rory Duckles, who taught both Michael and I. There was no music at Highlands, there were no school plays or recitals, dance had danced its way clear out of the picture. Poetry? What was that? It was for those of us who lived on the dark side of the moon. I took art as a subject until I was told unceremoniously that the school's single art teacher was going off elsewhere, and so art couldn't be taught for matric. Rugby was the school's theatre, and it is not untrue to say that it was a theatre for which many boys lived. Last year, a fellow matriculant from the Highlands class of 1981 wrote a story about his school years in the Daily Maverick, a widely respected South African website. Before publication, he approached me to read and comment upon the story, which I happily did. His story was about his guilt at a nasty racial incident, and so an exorcism of sorts, this I see now, but that's not what concerns me here. What concerns me is the fact that he wrote that the school didn't touch him and was a waste of five years, something I mildly disagreed with then and strongly disagree with now. School wasn't a waste for me. It wasn't a waste of time because it was a microcosm of much that is both good and bad in the world. It's best to be exposed to such things as soon as possible. But it also wasn't a waste because life lived, even with minimal reflection, is never a waste. As boys at Highlands North Boys High, between 1977 and 1981, we were part of something unique, something warped, something strange and at times even beautiful. Apartheid was in full swing and it coloured our days with cadets and bomb drills and a grotesque fear of black people out of all proportion to what was decent or normal. They were blissful, unexamined days, sharp with fears I arrived at school, sharp with the simple joy of being alive in a time and place like none other, of feeling the force of life in our young bodies and playing sport. 